we're discussing the count of David Brady's remaining teeth. Wait, how many are there? Just the one. <laughs> <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. This episode is sponsored by CodeShip. CodeShip is a hosted continuous delivery service focusing on speed, security, and customizability. You can set up continuous integration in a matter of seconds and automatically deploy when your tests have passed. CodeShip supports your GitHub and Bitbucket projects. You can get started with CodeShip's free plan today. Should you decide to go with a premium plan, you can save 20% off any plan for the next three months by using the code RubyRogues. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code RubyRogues, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 219 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Coraline Ada Emke. Hello from New Hope, Pennsylvania. Jessica Kerr. Good morning. Avdi Grimm. Hello from Tennessee. Saran Yitbark. Hey, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and we've got a special guest this week, and that is Justin Collins. Hello. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Justin Collins, known to most of the internet as President Beef, and author of Breakman, the static analysis security tool for Rails. And currently, I split my time between working at SurveyMonkey as an application security engineer and working on Breakman Pro. Why President Beef? So, that is something that I never explain. <laughs> yes, exclusive! <laughs> no, I'm still not going to explain it. Oh, no! <laughs> oh, okay, I tried. Okay, well, more importantly, as President of Beef, where can I find the best brisket? <laughs> uh, I usually eat brisket at Korean barbecue places, so that's where I would go. Oh, that sounds really good. All right. Well, so Breakman, uh, do you want to give a brief introduction of what that is? Sure. So Breakman is a static analysis security tool for Rails. <laughs> okay. So it basically looks at your code and tells you what you did that was unsafe? Right. So the idea behind static analysis is basically anything you can determine about a program 
without actually running the program. So it's looking at the source code of your program and then looking for potential security vulnerabilities. Can you give us some examples of common vulnerabilities? Sure. Cross-site scripting, SQL injection, mass assignment, open redirects. Wait, aren't most of those covered by Rails? I mean, cross-site scripting is turned on by default, or cross-site script, yeah, anyway, the forgery checking is turned on by default, and, uh, you know, SQL injection, I guess you have to deliberately use that, but... So, Rails does give you a lot. However, there's a lot of holes in what it gives you. In fact, if you check out rails-sqli.org, a little website I put together that points out all the areas where active record you would expect it to be protecting you from SQL injection, but it doesn't. Okay. So why does it? Is it just being sloppy and careless, or is there like reasons for not doing that? I suspect there are reasons. You would have to ask the Rails core team why those reasons exist. In some cases, I, I think they expected people to use it in a different way than most people use it. So there's places where you can pass in, you know, SQL fragments or hashes of arguments where most people aren't going to do that. They're just going to pass in like a single integer. That's what they expect to happen. So I, I assume when they were designing the API, they just had different use cases in mind than what people end up actually doing. Well, I know when I was first programming in Rails, this was back like version 1.1 or 1.2. And I'm not sure if the bad examples came off the internet or from, you know, coworkers who were new, newish to Rails too, but we would interpolate into a string and then tell Active Record to go find it. And so, yeah, we were wide open to SQL injection. And then, you know, as, as I got a little more experienced and, you know, my friends got a little more experienced, then we realized that that was probably not smart. So a tool like that that said, hey, uh, that's not smart would have been nice. I mean, I, th I think that is a lot of the value of Breakman is when people run it and they don't really know what it's going to find. And then it points out problems and then they say, why is that even a problem? And then they go dig into it and it ends up being a learning tool that way as opposed to just a, you know, point out the problems tool. Right. So let's assume that we have new people listening to the podcast. Do you want to just briefly explain what SQL injection and cross-site scripting and some of these others are? Sure. The way I like to look at it is that SQL injection, cross-site scripting, command injection, other injections, <laughs> they're, but they're all forms of injection where you're taking untrusted input and you're handing it to a parser of some kind. And that parser could be an HTML parser. It could be a bash command line parser. It could be uh, a SQL parser. And when you're handing it that input, you're expecting it to be treated as data. But instead, it's being treated as code and being executed. So for cross-site scripting, you're usually talking about JavaScript being executed in the browser. But you didn't expect it to be executed as JavaScript. You thought it was going to be displayed as text. For a SQL injection, you're passing a value into a SQL query, and you thought it was going to be treated as data, but instead it's being treated as SQL and executed. So all those fall under sort of this broad category of injection attacks. Now, are those the only ones that Breakman finds, or are there others that you're looking for too? Uh, no, so there's, there's quite a few. So mass assignment is one I think everyone's kind of aware of now because of GitHub getting hacked. 
by Igor Hamakov and sort of all the drama that came out of that. <laughs> um, so most people are like, oh yeah, mass assignment, I, I know that one. So it, it will look for those. Um, it, it looks for a lot of sort of specific things like, I mean, it's still cross-site scripting, but you know, when you're creating a link to tag, you're calling link to to create a link tag. When you pass, well, so depending on the version of Rails, older versions of Rails, either parameter to link to the text to put in the link or the link itself were both vulnerable. Uh, but now the text is safe, but the link is still vulnerable because it doesn't care what protocol you use in the link. So you can pass in JavaScript colon and execute that. So that's that's not really something that's happening in the template. That's something, well, I mean, it is in the template, but it's a, an issue with Rails sort of being unsafe in that way. And I also, I also mentioned open redirects earlier. So when you're using redirect to, by default, it will redirect to wherever you want. And there really isn't a good way of saying, I only want you to redirect to somewhere within my own application. What, uh, what inspired you to start with Breakman in the first place? So Breakman was actually an internship project at AT&T Interactive. And what happened was I, I went in for the interview for the internship on the security team, not really knowing anything about security. And we were talking about cross-site scripting and whatever. And I said, well, you know, what if you just had a tool that would look at the inputs and the outputs of your program. And if an input went all the way to the output without being escaped, then it would warn you about that. And they got really excited and they said, oh, like, do you know a tool that does that? I said, no, but it can't be that hard to build it. Famous and, last words, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And five years later, here we are. But I assume it didn't take five years to, to get it working, right? I think you're on version three is what I saw. Yeah, that's true. Um, so how long did it take to get that proof of concept? Uh, basically the length of the internship. So at the end of the internship, it was open sourced. And I don't recall what all was working, but I know the first thing I worked on was cross-site scripting. And at the end of the internship, it was released, and then I didn't work on it because I had no reason to work on it. Uh, and then AT&T Interactive hired me back, and then I started working on it again. And since then... Uh, most of the companies, well, I, I worked at AT&T Interactive and then I worked at Twitter. And in both cases, working on Breakman was kind of part of my job. So that kept me going. Otherwise, you know, uh, as just a, a regular person, I don't really write Rails apps and I have no reason to work on the tool. So what have you learned about security over the last five years writing Breakman? Basically everything I know about security I've learned in the last five years working on Breakman. What was the thing that probably surprised you the most? I think what tends to surprise me is that I, I started working at SurveyMonkey recently. And so it was a, a change of company and a change of, you know, the set of developers. And I never know what people, what other people know, right? And you kind of, you want to assume that people know uh, what you know. And it turns out most people don't know what you know. And when it comes to security, a lot of people, maybe they have a vague idea, but no one wants to dig into the specifics of things. And they tend to kind of assume that their tools, their frameworks are doing the work for them and that they're safe if they just, you know, use the framework, use Rails. You know, I'm using Rails, so it should protect me from SQL injection and from cross-site scripting. But without understanding how they're protecting you, 
it's easy to make a mistake and do something that's unsafe. So I guess the thing that tends to surprise me is that people don't know about security, but it really shouldn't be a surprise because I didn't know either until I started doing it. Are there good ways to start beefing up on security if you're a Rails developer? Yes, I would recommend using Breakman. <laughs> the Rails security guide is actually very good. In fact, people outside the Rails community will point to it as an example of where to learn about web security. So it's, it's a very good guide. It's getting a little outdated now, but it's still pretty good. There's also the Rails cheat sheets from OWASP, which has a lot of the same information. And then if, if you just start looking through uh, the OWASP guides in particular, uh, there's a lot of good information there. Uh, OWASP, for those who don't know, is the Open Web Application Security Project. It says project in the name, but really it's a global nonprofit organization that's really dedicated to just getting information about web security to developers. So they put together a list called the OWASP Top 10, uh, which through some magical process, they come up with the top 10 sort of most important web vulnerabilities. And that's, that's a really good place to start looking. Cool. You mentioned that in some cases, security problems have emerged because the Rails core team did not anticipate what people were going to do with the functionality that they provided. How important do you think that security is to the Rails core team? Do you think they spend enough time and energy thinking about it? So my very personal opinion is no. I think there's a lot of work that could be done there. The presentation I did at RailsConf this year listed out a bunch of things that I think uh, Rails could be doing better. And when I gave the presentation, no one in the room, at least no one in the room admitted they were a Rails core committer, or there were none there. And I, you know, from things I hear from other people who are in the Rails security world, trying to get Rails security issues fixed, it usually takes quite a bit of time and sometimes some convincing to get them to actually fix things. So uh, it's nothing against the Rails core team. You know, I think they're all wonderful people, but I don't think that the focus on security has been what it should be. Can you give an example of something that you think they could do better in Rails core? Sure. I mean, I gave the example already of um, link to, there's no safe way of using it. Uh, redirect to, there's no way of safely using it that's built in. There's no, you know, the I, I mentioned the website where I put together all these examples of using active record unsafely. And quite a few of those, I think they could really just change the API. I mean, Rails 5 is coming out. Just get rid of sort of the backwards APIs that probably no one's using, right? But Rails 5 would be a good time to break that functionality if people are using it. I also think, um, you know, I, I talked about this in my presentation, but... I think there are certain things that are provided by gems that really maybe they should start being built into Rails, like having an authorization framework, having account and session management built in so that it's just there and it's ready to go. You know, almost anything built on Rails, you're going to have user accounts and you need some way of managing them. And everyone, I think, kind of comes up with their own way, which may or may not be safe. So is the larger, I guess goal or vision for you and Breakman to get it eventually integrated to Rails? Is it in Rails? Is that important to you? Uh, no. So because Breakman is a static analysis tool, it really shouldn't be run with your code. 
which is an issue that I have with Bundler and people putting Breakman into their gem files. And there really there isn't a good solution for this, uh, as far as I know, because people want to declare the dependency on Breakman so that they can have Breakman available and run it, which is great. But if you put something in your gem file and then you run it via rake, rake will load up all of your Rails app and then start running the rake tasks. So you have Breakman dependencies, which are you know totally unrelated to your app dependencies, and yet they have to work together, which doesn't make sense. So I don't think having Breakman part of Rails makes much sense. However, I think anyone who is using Rails should be using Breakman as well. But it doesn't make sense as a, a source dependency. I, d- I don't know how that would work. So do you just run it on your CI machine, or is it fast enough to run it when you run your tests? Uh, so I, I think CI is the best place to run it. There is a, a Breakman plugin for Guard, which will run every time you change your code. And it uses some uh, Breakman goodness to sort of incrementally scan your application. In fact, it's the only plugin that does this. So uh, any other tool that tries to only scan the files that have changed is actually not using Breakman well because Breakman needs to see the entire application. So you, you can run it as files change. You could run it as part of your tests. It's generally fast enough to do that uh, except for large applications. I usually say if Breakman takes longer than five minutes to run, you should probably file a bug and let me look into it. But in the end, I I think CI is the best place for it because it's out of the way. And as a security person, I think it's important uh, not to get in people's way because then they get grumpy about security (laughs) and don't want to deal with it. So I I think the CI server is, is the best place for it. I also wonder, are there specific types of vulnerabilities that are hard to find with static analysis? Yes, for sure there are. You know, anything that doesn't have sort of a specific pattern to look for, if you're writing your own code to do something, you know, there's there's no way really to know that that's going to be dangerous or not. And really the, the reason I think that Breakman has been successful is because Rails is so focused on this convention over configuration and things are generally in the same place and you can make a lot of assumptions about what the code is doing and then you have the whole, you know, the whole Rails API with all this stuff built in. So you can build that into a tool. So you can say, I know what this method call does because it's a standard Rails API. So I can tell if it's safe or not just from knowing it's a Rails method. But when you start venturing outside of that, it's very hard to determine what's going on. Plus, there's whole classes of vulnerabilities that you, you just can't find because they're logic problems. You know, you were mentioning uh, before the show, you were working with payment processors. Well, there's no way I can detect that your interaction with some external API is wrong. You know, maybe when it returns the response from the API, you're not treating it correctly and you're allowing a sale to go through that shouldn't go through. You know, there's no way to detect that statically unless you know everything about the API and all the calls that you're making and can figure out that logic. That leads me to another question, and that is, is so I've worked on some applications that had certain amounts of shared logic that were put into Rails engines. If you're not familiar with Rails engines, I'm sure you are, but I'm just saying for the audience, uh, Rails engines are essentially plugins 
that are usually packaged up as gems, you know, or put in a Git repository and kind of treated as gems anyway. Does it look into those kinds of things as well, or do you need to run the static analysis against your engines as well? So that's a very good question. Uh, right now, it doesn't work very well if you try to run it on the engine alone, unless that engine is pretty beefy and there's a lot of stuff, you know, you have a lot of controllers and everything going on in there. But if it's very narrow and you're just adding like one little piece of functionality, it doesn't work very well because it's hard to tell that it's actually a Rails app. Uh, however, if you can add your engine either to the engine's subdirectory, which is, I believe, where they used to go, but maybe not anymore, or if you can point Breakman to your engine directory, so if it's in source control and maybe it's in the same repo and you can point Breakman to it in addition to your main app, uh, then it will work. It basically just treats it as if it's part of your application. Uh, but there actually is some work to do around that to make it uh, a little bit better. I believe there's an open issue for Breakman around that if someone wants to look into it. So I, I would say it's supported, but not super well. Gotcha. So when is the right time to start thinking? I know the answer to this question, but if you have advice for people who are just getting started with an app, is security something you should be thinking about right from the get-go? Absolutely. So like most things in software engineering, the earlier you do it, the better, and the easier it will be. Trying to retrofit security into legacy applications is just miserable, right? Just like retrofitting changes into any legacy applications can be hard and difficult and you don't want to break things and maybe it relies on certain behavior that is like, well, if I change this, I break my app, but if I don't change it, it's not safe. So if you do things safely from the beginning, your life will just be that much easier. Plus, you'll be secure from the beginning uh, as opposed to being you know, not safe for a period of time and then trying to go back and fix things. I heard an absolute horror story. Here in Chicago, there's an incubator, a tech incubator, where there tend to be a lot of idea people looking for technical co-founders. And these technical co-founders tend to be people straight out of code schools. So there's one particular project that was um, aimed at a very noble goal of helping people on welfare understand what their benefits were. And they were collecting personal information in the form of social security numbers and addresses and storing them unencrypted. And apparently their API had a, had a hole in it so that it was possible with some URL manipulation to get a, a plain text dump of personal information for all the site's users. Oh my goodness. It was pretty horrifying. It's a shame because it was, you know, a great project with a noble goal, but they're very inexperienced developers who barely knew how to write a Rails application, let alone a secure Rails application, who were in charge of doing it. So where do people like that get started then? Because you're saying we should be paying attention to it from the beginning, and I completely agree. But a lot of times people kind of get hung up on, well, I don't know anything about security and I don't know what I don't know about security. And so I'm just going to kind of hand wave over it for a little bit, you know, instead of at least taking that first step and going, OK, well, at least I know SQL injection or at least I know cross-site scripting or at least I know, you know, maybe one or two other things. Where do people go to kind of get that kind of education? So I would point back to the OWASP top 10 that I mentioned before. Okay. Because I, I, I mean, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Because when, when you're writing an app, when you're writing any software, 
what's the first priority? It's just to get it working, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? What do I have to do to get it working, to get the functionality that I, I, I imagine in my head? Now I need to get it working in code. So to me, you know, of course it would be great if everyone had all this security knowledge. But of course that's that's unrealistic. Just like it would be great if, you know, people knew about all these libraries and all these great APIs you can use and, you know, no one can keep all that information in their head. So for developers, I think what's important is just to have that awareness, right? If you don't know what cross-site scripting is, you should probably look into it just just to understand that there's this thing called cross-site scripting and kind of what it is. You don't have to know all the ins and outs and what are all the defenses and what are all the ways that people can get around those defenses and all of that, but just be aware that it exists. And I think that's why the OWASP top 10 is so useful. Okay, here's a list of 10 things that you should be thinking about that you should be aware of. And then using tools, I think, like Breakman to kind of help you with, well, I'm using Rails, for example, and I want to be security conscious, but I don't know what is safe and what's unsafe in Rails. So Breakman can help you with that side of it. However, I do think that there is a responsibility on the side of the framework developers, not just Rails, but any web framework, And, you know, new web frameworks come out all the time. And I think there's a responsibility there to have these sort of basic protections built in to the framework itself. So escaping output by default, having safe ways of interacting with the database, having cross-site request forgery protection built in and on, and all of those built into the framework. Because, you know, as you mentioned, there are things that are hard to detect statically. There are things that are hard to get right. And the more things that you can get right by default without having to worry about it, the better off everyone's going to be, including people who are brand new and they're just trying to write an app and get things working. Do you think that code school should be teaching security? Seems like a good idea. And again, security is a huge topic and it's getting larger all the time. So my suggestion is really to just cover those basics, just to have an awareness of the things that could happen. And I think that goes a long ways towards when you're writing the code, understanding, you know, even if maybe initially you write it in an unsafe way, understanding the possibilities of what can go wrong can help you go back through and go, oh, wait, you know, I I wrote this API and you know, if someone did this, then this bad thing would happen. And I wouldn't have thought of that if I wasn't aware that these things could happen in the first place. So you've done security for AT&T Interactive, Twitter, now SurveyMonkey. I'm wondering what kinds of security issues did you see in those roles and how many or how much of that did you translate over to Breakman? So that's a good question. As much as possible, anytime. I'm going to answer your question backwards. So anytime I I see something new or I find out about something new, I'm always thinking, how can I get it into Breakman? You know, is it possible to detect this? And if so, like, let's get it into Breakman. In terms of the kinds of things that I saw, you know, they tend to be the same things that you see everywhere. You know, you have cross-site scripting, you have SQL injection, you have people forgetting to add cross-site request forgery protection to a, a particular endpoint. So as long as these really sort of surface level, well-known vulnerabilities continue to exist in our apps, 
it's almost not worth talking about the more complicated, you know, weird stuff that can go on deep in your code. And of course, I can't talk about specific issues I've seen. <laughs> I, I am curious. One other thing, um, since we're talking about security is let's say that I build an application that does have user data or, you know, other sensitive data in it. What do you do when you actually have a breach? Uh, what do you do when you have a breach? Yeah. So what, what if somebody finds a way to, you know, through SQL injection or some other exploit on Rails or on, you know, something that I'm using in my Rails app, you know, they find a way in and they take that data and I figure out that somebody's been in there. What should I do in order to, you know, mitigate the damage? And I think for a lot of people, the tendency is to just go and kind of hide it. But I don't know that that's necessarily very helpful. Right. So data breaches have become a big topic, right? Even in mainstream sort of news cycles. And, uh, you know, in the security community, I think most people are pushing towards notify people as soon as possible. Make sure you understand the scope of what happened so that you can be very specific in what information was accessed, how many people were affected. And from there, you, you know, you can, it determines, you know, what you do, right? So if you say, well, actually all that was accessed were people's email addresses. Well, that's not extremely sensitive information. So what do you do? I mean, as a user, there's not really much you can do unless you want to change the email address you gave to a particular site. There's not a lot of action to take there. If you say, however, well, your social security number was accessed and your home address was accessed, now people should probably be going and talking to, you know, credit companies and putting protections around that information so that they can't, they're not victims of identity theft. And depending on your company and what you handle, you may have different obligations under uh, PCI regulations or HIPAA regulations. And those tend to include notifying your customers. Anyway, the feeling in the community, the security community as I'm aware of it is notify people as soon as possible and be very specific about what was accessed and what that means for the users of your service. Because if, if you just say, well, there was a data breach and some people were affected, but don't really worry about it, uh, people get very suspicious. Right? <laughs> <laughs> These are not the droids you were looking for. Yeah, just, uh, you know, the, something happened, but don't really, don't pay attention to that. Uh, everything's fine. People assume the worst. So the more specific you can be, I think the better. And having that quick response, right? More and more people are expecting that if something happens to you security-wise, you better tell them right away. Because people tend to sort of find out. And then, you know, stuff is going on on social media, and they're like, well, the company hasn't even made a statement yet. And if you wait like a week, oh, I mean, it's it's game over. Like people are really mad. Uh, on the other hand, you don't want to say anything prematurely. So for companies, that's a tricky position to be in. Uh, you don't want to say, okay, they only access this information. And then you find out actually they accessed more than that. So that process and, and being on that end of it inside the company, dealing with that kind of uh, situation is very stressful. You know, you're, you're running around like, are they still in the company? Are they, you know, what could they access? What, what is the worst case scenario here? You know, at first you're thinking, oh my gosh, the sky's falling. But then sometimes you find out, oh, well, actually it wasn't that big of a deal. We're okay. So, you know, it's not easy being the company that, that's having a breach either. 
Yeah, I've always wondered what the, you know, user response or backlash is to that. I mean, obviously, you have to be honest, you have to be transparent, you have to, you know, let the users know what's going on. But in your experience, how forgiving have users been? And and what kind of determines whether they say it's okay, don't do it again, or they just leave? Charlie Miller, who's a a well-known security researcher, he gives this talk And he basically went through and he looked at companies that had breaches and he looked at their stock price around the time of the breach. And what he found was the stock price dipped and then went right back up. So the market in that sense is very forgiving. However, these are going to be large companies that are public. And I think the smaller you are, the the bigger the impact is going to be, the less forgiving people are going to be. If you just have some little startup And, you know, as Coraline was mentioning, you know, there's a breach. It's very easy for, you know, your 500 or 1,000 users to say, you know what, like, I don't trust you, I'm out of here. Whereas if you're Target, well, people are probably going to keep shopping at Target, right? Yep. Yeah. I have a question, Justin. I saw a talk at Open Source Bridge by a woman named Terry Oda. She was talking specifically about security for open source applications and she emphasized the role that crowdsourcing security can have and the importance of having distinct communication channels for reporting potential security risks, like a specific form or an email address. Do you have an opinion? I know you, you break in as a static analysis tool, but what about crowdsourcing security? Do you think that's an effective tactic? So I, I'm a huge open source fan, and I think in open source, of course, the opportunity for people to find stuff is greater because the source is available. And if the source is not available, the likelihood of someone finding stuff is lower. And I do think that it's valuable to have people looking at the code. And I don't know how much people go and look for security issues in open source code, but I think it's, of course, it's wonderful if they do. And I do think, you know, you have to start considering when you're an open source project uh, what do you do if there's a security issue in your code? Because I think you have a rep, uh, responsibility to your users to protect them, right? So what do you do when someone wants to report a security issue? Like you mentioned, well, ideally you have some private way of communicating that to the maintainers. I don't know that many projects are big enough to require that. It seems like a bit of overhead when you don't know you know, it may never be used. So uh, I don't know. I have I have mixed thoughts on the private communication can- channel. Of course, it's, it's great if you can do it, but I don't know if it makes sense to say, hey, every open source project should have some private way of reporting security issues. Uh, maybe it makes sense to have an organization in charge of that that can accept those reports. That might make sense. However, in, in terms of crowdsourcing security, I mean, it, it's a great idea. And you, you just have to be careful about you know, what is your response? Of course, you want to fix it, but then as soon as you patch it, right, people are going to know if you push it publicly. So just being responsible about, you know, notifying people, hey, there is a security fix in this release. You should update. And here's the new update, I, I think is really important. Makes sense. I have some questions about the technical nitty gritty of Breakman and how it does the static analysis. I was wondering if you could just kind of explain, at least at a high level, like if you're looking for a cross-site scripting vulnerability, what patterns are you looking for in the analysis? 
So there, there's many ways that static analysis tools do this stuff. The way Breakman does it is it works on the abstract syntax tree itself. And so when you're talking about cross-site scripting, for example, the way that, as far as I'm aware, all uh, Rails templating languages work is that they actually compile to Ruby code. And in that code, there will be different method calls depending on whether they're escaping that output or not. So that makes Breakman's job relatively easy because it can look at, it will actually use the libraries, compile the templates to Ruby code, and then uses uh, Ryan Davis's Ruby parser to parse that into an abstract syntax tree. And then it knows, so this is a slim template, this is ERB, whatever it is, these are the method calls that are safe, and these are the ones that are unsafe. And at that point, you're, you know, it, it's easy to detect. However, I will say one thing that Breakman does, and I, I think maybe people are less aware of, is that it's only going to warn you about cross-site scripting if it actually thinks there's a dangerous value being output. Uh, if it doesn't know where the value is coming from, though, it doesn't know it's dangerous and it won't warn you about it. So that's, uh, that's to avoid people getting annoyed with false positives, but it may also lead to some false negatives. So what is, but, it, what is yeah. it looking for to identify a dangerous value? Right. So in Rails, again, this is just because Rails is so standardized, it makes these things a little bit easier, right? So if you see a call to params, you know that it's a query parameter and that's dangerous. So it looks for params. It looks for cookies, even though people don't usually output cookies, but it looks for that. It looks for session variables. And then it also looks for, are you outputting an attribute from an active record model? And that one I think is the most controversial because people, well, for one thing, it's hard to tell if it's actually like a database driven attribute, but also people, a lot of people are like, well, stuff in my database is safe, right? And it's like, well, no, maybe it may be safe, may not be safe. So those are, those are the main things that it looks for. And are you doing any kind of data tracing, or is it pretty much just like a, a one remove from like the parameters or or some other unsafe source? Right. So Breakman does do some what I like to call limited data flow analysis. And again, this is like one of those reasons why it works well with Rails. And when people ask me to make it work on other things, I say no. <laughs> Which is that you know in Rails. Uh, this is a controller. It's going to be setting values, and then it's going to be rendering a template. And it's going to be rendering this template. It's very easy to determine which template's being rendered. So what Breakman does is it will look at your before filters, if you set any instance variables there. And then it will look at the controller action and the values that are set there. And then it will look at the template. And if you're using values in templates that were set in a controller, uh, it will generally trace those values through. Um, and then there are some other things that it can do. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I skipped the main part, which is that it does local data flow analysis. So within a, a method or within a template, it will trace assignments through to their uses. Uh, however, That's pretty cool. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's also one of the things that tends to set Breakman apart from other static analysis tools because a lot of times they, they don't do that. However, I, Was that um, really hard to, to code, or was it super hard to code? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, first of all, thank you for that acknowledgement. So where it gets tricky, it was actually, yeah, so most of the complexity in Breakman is, is in that analysis. The, the hardest part was, and this is maybe why you should not read stuff on the internet, but I was working on Breakman and I was about to release 1.0. And then I saw this post in a mailing list and it said, oh yeah, Breakman's okay, but it can't even detect this. And they had this simple if statement where they were assigning things and because of the way the data flow analysis worked, like it didn't understand this if statement. So right before the 1.0 release, I'm like, oh, well, like I can deal with that. And I implemented handling branches in, inside the code. And it, it totally ruined the performance of that release. Because when you start dealing with, well, the code could do this or it could do that, you end up with just, you know, tons of possibilities. And the way Breakman handles that is basically by unioning the possible values that something could have. And those unions tend to go out of control. So there's a lot of code around like, okay, well, if I'm unioning these two values, like, let me look at them and, you know, do I only need one or the other? Or can I combine them somehow? Or is this just getting too big? I'm just going to stop doing this. So yeah, uh, there was a lot of complexity around that. Um, and also the, the way Breakman does it is much different than a lot of other tools would do it. And uh, that leads to complexity and uh, weird output sometimes. What sort of features do you have on the horizon for the next release? Um, so I, I've actually been rewriting a lot of Breakman internally. So early on, one of the things I did was um, when Ruby parser builds the S expressions in the abstract syntax tree, the names it uses for some of the nodes, I didn't like them. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I'll just replace them with names that I like, which seemed smart at the time. But then what happened was later on in the code, I would have to go, oh, wait, it may be using the name that I gave it, or it may be using the original name because I didn't actually process this node and change the name. So one thing I've been doing is like pulling out that and going back to the original names. However, there are some things I'm working on. Uh, right now, Breakman doesn't look at mailers at all. And really, mailer templates end up being a lot like regular templates in Rails. So I, I, I want to work on that. Let's see, what else? There's some work to be done around uh, Haml. Sometimes you'll get like this output from Haml templates that Breakman doesn't quite handle properly. So there, there's like internal methods that are being called that it should be treating as internal methods, but instead it it says, oh, there's cross-site scripting here, which is not entirely correct. Um, and then another thing I've been working on is um, supporting the helper methods in, inside of controllers. Uh, actually, I think I already fixed that. You know, there, there's always stuff to be changed and fixed. And yeah. <laughs> Have you ever considered uh, taking your experience with static analysis and, and building other kinds of tools with it? Other kinds of static analysis tools? Yeah, looking for stuff other than security. Not really. I, I basically have my time filled up with working on Breakman. What I have done, though, is I've given a couple presentations, which I hoped would explain uh, the choices that I've made with Breakman and how to apply it to other languages so that people can build these kinds of tools. 
I don't know how successful that has been, but uh, I do feel like I, I got that information out there. So if you wanted to build a similar tool, you could. But yeah, personally, I you know, Breakman is enough of a hassle that I, I don't really go looking for other things to do. Gotcha. Is there a way for people to support the project? Uh, to support Breakman itself? Yes. So I, I've always felt very strange. Uh, you mean monetarily? <laughs> um, yeah, monetarily, code, documentation, just general help, any of that. Ah, uh, so yeah, I mean... But I know there's a monetarily in there, so... <laughs> so yes people are, are always welcome to help for me the the biggest thing the biggest help is when people can say i tried to run breakman and it didn't work or i saw some output that i wasn't expecting or i'm using a, a different templating language are you going to support it because that gives me stuff to work on stuff to fix I will say that Breakman is not the easiest code to work on, and it has nothing to do with the complexity of doing static analysis. It has everything to do with, you know, I started working on it five years ago, and I hope I'm a better programmer now than I was then. So contributing code, I, I realize, is, is difficult, and there isn't a lot of documentation around it. So contributing just by opening up an issue and saying, I tried to run it and it, it didn't work, is very useful. Uh, documentation, I, I wish people would help out with that. That would be great, especially, you know, around using the tool and understanding the tool. I don't have a good sense for whether people find it hard or easy to use. A lot of times I ask people and they're like, oh, yeah, I just used it and it was fine. And like, okay, so I guess it, it worked. <laughs> Financially, I've always thought it's a little bit strange because Generally, I've been able to work on it while I'm actually at my day job. And so things have come up where, oh, you should apply for this open source grant or this sort of funding over here. And I'm like, well, I already kind of get paid to work on it. So I'm not, I'm not worried about it. And I don't want to take that away from projects that, that do need it. That being said, if you want to pay me to work on specific features, I am, I will take the money for sure. Uh, however, I believe your question was leading towards uh, the existence of Breakman Pro. Yeah, we talked about that at RailsConf, so I was curious to see where that was at. So we are in the middle of the uh, beta, the closed beta. So if you are interested in trying it out, you're welcome to go to breakmanpro.com, sign up for the beta. There isn't really like a screening process. <laughs> we just send you an email with the links. So we are working on it, and by we, I mean myself, Neil Matatal, and Jim Manico. And, you know, we're, we're plugging away on it. Breakman Pro is going to be a, a des actually a desktop application. So I, I think everyone expects it to be a software as a service. And if you're looking for Breakman as a service, as I like to call it, uh, there are a bunch of providers out there just... Google for it, or actually on the Breakman GitHub wiki, there's a list of providers, and I don't recommend any over another. Don't play favorites, but there are lots of providers out there. So Breakman Pro is going to be a tool, uh, sort of a desktop application, and it, it's a way to, one, present the information in, an, in a different way, an, a new way that's 
easier to navigate, easier to consume, as well as being an opportunity for me to put in the functionality that really doesn't fit in the open source project. So for the open source project, it's really about being fast and giving you know relatively low amounts of false positives. So there, there are features that I don't implement because I know it's going to add a lot of overhead or it's just going to generate mostly false positives. However, for the pro product, I think there are a set of people that they want all that information. So that's sort of where the, the pro version is differentiating itself as well as having a nice UI. And to be honest, I forgot that the, the open source version doesn't have this nice UI. And I, you know, I was using it at some point and I was like, oh yeah, I gotta use like this, this ugly HTML report. And oh, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to deal with. So if you feel like you want to contribute to Breakman and you're like, well, I, I don't know if I can dig into the code and I haven't really run across any bugs, feel free to go and redesign the HTML report and make it much more beautiful. So Justin, you went and got a PhD and did your research in something completely unrelated to Rails security. Why Correct. did you get a PhD? <laughs> Why did I get a PhD? <laughs> I think almost everyone who's in graduate school is wondering that same question. <laughs> so um, just personally, when I was finishing my bachelor's in computer science at Seattle University, uh, I, I feel like a lot of people have the same feeling. I went, wait, I'm about to graduate. I don't feel like I know enough. And so I was, I was interested in graduate school. I did some research in undergrad and I thought, well, this is kind of fun. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll go get a master's. And then again, this is just a totally personal thing, but I was like, well, but why stop at a master's? You know, if I'm going to go, I should just go all the way. And that is the wrong attitude, by the way. <laughs> uh, that is not a way to, that is not how you should decide whether or not you should get a PhD. Um, however, you know, I, I don't regret it, even though I, th I think I took a, a very non-traditional route. Um, I worked for the last three years, three years? No. Uh, last, maybe it was the last three years? No. Wait, I'm sorry. I, I can't remember how time works. <laughs> but I, I had full-time jobs working at AT&T Interactive and Twitter while I was finishing my PhD, which is totally wrong thing to do. Um, I also got married while I was doing my PhD and right, you know, after, when I finished my final defense, uh, my advisor, you know, he shook my hand and he said, you know, the two biggest reasons why I see students not finish their PhD is they start working full-time jobs and they get married. So I'm very surprised <laughs> that you actually graduated. Yeah. So, uh, and the, the, you know, a lot of people are surprised that, I didn't do it in security. I didn't do it in, you know, Breakman wasn't my PhD project. And that's because I started Breakman as an internship project after I was already in the middle of my PhD. So that's why it ended up being totally different. And uh, my PhD was on mobile ad hoc networks. And so there's a question of, well, why didn't you do security for mobile ad hoc networks? And I will tell you that I didn't do it I actively did not do it because it is an incredibly hard question. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't interested in solving that question. Cool. So are you glad you have your PhD now that it's done? 
so I'm glad I did it. You know, honestly, I, I wouldn't have built Breakman if I hadn't done my PhD because the classes I took on static analysis and compilers was during my time at UCLA doing my PhD. But I don't know that, you know, actually having the PhD is that valuable. <laughs> but it's, you know, I actually read a comment and it said, I don't think anyone who's gotten their PhD has finished without some kind of permanent brain damage. And oh, no. I don't know that brain damage is the right term, but it's definitely an emotionally challenging process to go through. And there are a lot of people that, you know, it's very damaging. So it's not something to do lightly. And I, so I don't know. I, I don't know what to tell people because on one hand, you know, I think it was worth doing for me. But if the goal is, well, I'm going to have a PhD, it, it's not really worth that much. You know, when I was working at Twitter, everyone at one point, everyone on my team except our manager had a PhD. So when you're like, in a field, you know, in a sea of PhDs, no one cares that you have a PhD. <laughs> hmm. Gotcha. Do you make people call you doctor? I tell people not to call me doctor. <laughs> I don't know, Dr. Beef? I mean, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, I prefer Dr. President Beef. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Before we get to picks, I want to take some time to thank our silver sponsor. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to rubyrogues.com slash CodeSchool. Avdi, do you want to start us with picks? Sure. Uh, I've got a bunch of picks, but I'm going to keep them all short. So starting off, uh, we haven't had a best of Parley pick in a while, and I've got one. We've got a, a thread going on Parley right now that sprouted off of episode 216 and it's talking all about nice ways of bringing up issues in code reviews, ways of, of saying, I'm not sure I would do it that way, but you know, in a really non-threatening way. And it's, it's a really neat, uh, fruitful discussion. I'm learning stuff from it. <clears throat> Next pick. I have finally finished the book object thinking by David West. It is the, most important book about object-oriented programming I've ever read, period, full stop. Wow. Next pick. There's a great uh, long article. It's actually a talk that was turned into a, a sort of transcript article uh, by, I do not know how to pronounce his name correctly. I'm just going to pronounce it as if it were in English, uh, Masij Siglowski. I'm sure I butchered that. But he's been one of my favorite writers on the web for a long time. He writes great stuff about travel, and he writes great stuff about tech. He's the, the guy behind Pinboard. And uh, he's got a an article called Web Design, the First 100 Years that's fantastic. Uh, it basically says that uh, web design right now is kind of like where the space program is, where, you know, if you look back, we really expected more of it, and it's ki it's kind of grounded itself in a way we didn't expect. But that's actually a good thing. Uh, so... Fascinating article, and as always with him, very, very funny. Plus Next one up, I, yeah, I uh, just got back from Brighton Ruby, and uh, a, that's a Ruby conference in, in lovely Brighton, England. I had a wonderful time, fantastic conference. Andy Kroll did a great job putting it on, um, great location. I definitely want to get back to Brighton. I understand that he's already planning uh, another go-around next year, uh, bigger and better, and uh, yeah, if you want to 
want to go to a, a conference in the UK, you could, you could definitely do far worse than this one. It's, it's, I'd love to get back to it again. Next up, I just want to pick email, which seems like a weird pick, especially uh, anybody who follows me uh, knows that I, I regularly tweet about how uh, full my email inbox is. But mostly I complain about the, all the stuff that forces me to make decisions. Um, lately, as I've been stepping away from social media, I've picked up some email threads with people where I've just started sort of regularly emailing back and forth with someone and having these really long, extended, interesting conversations. And uh, I haven't done really done much of that in a long time. It's been wonderful. I, I really kind of realized how much I missed having having these long, relatively deep, um, relatively slow-paced conversations with people. So, uh, yeah, email, it still exists, and it's it's kind of awesome. And finally, I will pick the Twitter mute button because it's not your responsibility to to give consideration to every random thing that somebody says to you. And, uh, you know, the alternative to considering it and then trying to rebut it uh, is to simply mute them and let them happily natter on to themselves uh, with no... <laughs> with, yes. with, with no need for either of you to uh, to take any further action. So yes, plus one. <laughs> that is it for my picks. Awesome, Saran. What are your picks? Sure, I have uh, three picks. I'll make them pretty quick too. Uh, so one is a Git tutorial that someone sent me. I can't remember who it was. Somebody in the Code community sent me that I really, really like. Um, so I've done kind of these online Google Hangout Git intro to Git sessions uh, live, and you know, kind of made it really interactive. Um, and after doing, I think about four or five of them, someone said, you know, you should send this out as a follow up, and it's really great. It's called Git: The Simple Guide. And it's really simple. It has big fonts and big letters and really simple commands and simple explanations. And it's just simple all around. So I love it a lot. And I would definitely recommend anyone take a look at it. And even if, you know, I assume a lot of our listeners are very familiar with Git, but it's also just a really good example for how to write tutorials and documentation. Everything from the style and the format to the wording to the order. So um, if you're interested in, in making educational material and tutorials and all that, um, definitely look at this as a template. It, it does a really good job. Uh, the second one is more for fun. So I, I've done, I used to do this more often, but I really like 3D art stuff. Um, and I found one that I love. And this one is called I Love My Campus. And it's really cool. I'm not going to tell you any more about it, but you should look at it. But and it's it's awesome. It's really cool. And the last one is Lone Star RubyConf. So I'm going to be keynoting with Avdi and and Dave Thomas from uh, Pragmatic Programmer. Avdi, I'm so excited to get to meet you in real life. By the way, I know. Me too. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so that's in two weeks. So if you are in Austin, Texas, I would love to to meet you and get to hang out with you. So that's my final pick. Awesome, Jessica. What are your picks? Okay. Okay. One quick pick, I guess I should pick React Rally, which is a conference in Salt Lake City because I'm going to be speaking there on August 24th, which is interesting because I've never used React and my JavaScript is terrible, but I totally know what I'm going to speak about and it's how functional programming and data flow is important and how React and then Elm embody that in JavaScript. So that'll be interesting. But my other pick is livecoding.tv, which is a site where you can watch people code. And that sounds strange, but then again, people like to watch other people play video games, so why not watch them code? It's a very new site. It's only been live since, like, June. And uh, my sister and I tried it the other day when we were pairing. Ah, why not throw it out there on the Internet? 